Then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. This is the message of good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after John began preaching his message of baptism. And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we apostles are witness of all that he did throughout Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him to life on the third day. Then God allowed him to appear not to the general public, but to us whom God had chosen in advance to be his witness. We were those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of all, the living and the dead. He is the one that all the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. Will you pray with me again? Lord Jesus, thank you for preserving these words, for preserving this story. Thank you for breathing life into the characters of this story in a specific time and place for a specific purpose. Thank you that the same spirit that breathed life into Peter's lungs and into Cornelius' lungs, the same spirit that was poured out on Peter and in just a few verses poured out on Cornelius and his friends is here now. You are here now. There's nothing we need that you don't have. Speak to us. Minister to the needs of your people. Set the captives free today. Set at liberty those who are oppressed. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight, Lord Jesus. Bless your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Just after the resurrection... Peter, this same Peter we just read about, was having a conversation over a charcoal fire. Now, Peter had had several conversations over charcoal fires in his lifetime. Being a fisherman on the shores of Galilee, they often had little fish fries right there on the shore. Charcoal fires, to be specific. And the smell of charcoal for his entire life had filled his heart with nostalgia, had filled his mind with memories of family and friends, had filled his heart with an idea of a way of life, with a single burning question, what does faithfulness look like? But over the charcoal fire this time, he was in front of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. And now the smell of the charcoal fire did not remind him of good things, did not remind him of a way of faithfulness, and it reminded him of his failure. You see, just a few days before, 
Peter had stood around a charcoal fire. Peter was within eyeshot, within view of Jesus, doing the last thing he'd ever thought he'd do, being unfaithful, denying his rabbi. He denied his association with his rabbi in front of a group of nobodies, miscreants, reprobates, outsiders, people outside the covenant had somehow infiltrated his thought and enabled him, empowered him, caused him, pushed him to deny Jesus. But now a new day dawned. Jesus was in fact found innocent of all the charges that Peter was afraid of hearing him being convicted of. Yet he was also convicted as a criminal that same night, crucified. But now that convicted, crucified criminal stands raised from the dead on the shores, cooking fish, holding out a piece for Peter to eat. Peter, do you love me? Do this. Peter, do you love me? Do that. Peter, do you love me? Do this. You see, clearly, Jesus is reversing the self-proclaimed curse of Peter's denial. The words denier of Christ were written over Peter's heart in three layers. And in three layers, Jesus reverses that curse. Peter had renounced his rabbi publicly, publicly turning his resignation of Jesus, turning in his resignation as one of Jesus' disciples in grand fashion. The words, I don't even know this man, must have haunted his dreams for those few nights away from Jesus. But now he's with him again. He doesn't get a condemning Jesus. He doesn't get a finger-pointing Jesus. He doesn't feel an authoritarian's tone. He sees Jesus smiling. Not only does Jesus refuse to accept Peter's resignation as a disciple, there over that fire, charbroiled fish on offer, he leads Peter through a profession of profound allegiance to Jesus and invites him back to a way of life, a way of faithfulness, and points a path to something he must do. Not just, do you believe in me? Do you love me? Not just, do you love me if you love me? Here's a path to show that you love me. And this was an amazing gift followed by another, another amazing gift. You see, Peter had seen insurrectionists raise up and die, not to be raised from the dead. Now his rabbi is a revolutionary. He is murdered for insurrection, and yet he's raised from the dead. And Peter can't help but think about death. He can't help but think about his own death. 
Jesus gives him an amazing gift. He tells him how he's going to die. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk around wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will be so old, in other words, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this to him, he said, follow me. Of course, there's no good way to die. No one likes to think about death. Death, by all accounts, is an enemy. But they say if you have a choice, if you have a choice as to how you're going to die, they say that the best way is actually to know when it's coming. In fact, a study of middle and older age adults in the UK found that a cancer diagnosis was preferable to other ways to die because they said they feel like they have some control over the pain and other, other symptoms. And they have time to set, settle their affairs and, of course, time to say goodbye to loved ones. I think what's missing in that is time to reflect on the meaning of their life. To have a death diagnosis with a timeline attached is a kind of a gift. Jesus was giving Peter a gift, saying, Peter, you're going to see people die because they follow me. But your version of faithfulness is not to die a young death as I did. Your version of faithfulness is to live a long life, so long that someone else is going to have to dress you. Of course, Peter asks about his best bud, and Jesus says, that's, not, that's between me and him. Peter, you've been with me. You can become like me and do what I did. Jesus restored Peter's relationship, redeemed Peter's life, and foretold his death. And there's a question he's been asking. Will I be faithful? In spite of all that I've done, Jesus, you know how much I want to be faithful. You know how much I've fallen, how hard it is for me to have been faithful, how hard it is for me to look back and see unfaithfulness on my resume. And yet here you are being so faithful. Here you are showing remarkable, faithful love. Chesed in the Hebrew, steadfast love. Peter, you're going to die old. The truth is we're all going to have to pass through death someday. As unpleasant as it sounds, as much as we want to avoid thinking about it, as many tools and uh, as much technology as we have on offer to distract us from this idea, we all know it's coming someday. We can approach it with a spirit of faith or with a spirit of fear. And my question for us today is this. When you get to the end of your life, whenever that may be, how would you like for someone to look back and describe that life? That life that was a gift to you. What did you do with it? What will you have done with 
your time here. Another more timely way to ask this question is when you get to the end of this week or even the end of this day, how will you like for people to have described the way you lived this week or the way you lived this day? Because the way you live a day is the way you live your life. The way you do anything is the way you do everything. How will you want people to have remembered you when you're gone? When, you, when they look back at your life, how will they describe it? You're familiar with an epitaph, right? Epitaphs on, on gravestones, headstones. According to Oxford, an epitaph is a phrase or a form of words written in memory of a person who has died, especially as an inscription on a tombstone. The epitaph on the tombstone of Wild West outlaw Jesse James, who I read about in school. Anybody know what that says? The epitaph on his headstone says, In loving memory of my beloved son, murdered by a traitor and coward whose name is not worthy to appear here. That sounds pretty legendary. Also sounds pretty shameful. What a waste of a life. Here's a much better epitaph for a much better life by a man who was also murdered for the way that he lived. Besides the epitaphs, the best epitaphs capture something about how a person lived, not just how they died. Martin Luther King Jr.'s epitaph reads, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Not just capturing his current state of being with Jesus, but something about the way that he lived. This past year, around this time, my mom went to be with Jesus after 72 years, most of which faithfully following Jesus, but she did have a life before that she was ashamed of. There, is, there are no words that are the epitaph on my mom's headstone. It's simply the picture of a, or a sketch of a flying butterfly, wings open. To her, a symbol of transformation and resurrection. Jesus transformed her life like that of a caterpillar to a butterfly. And someday he will resurrect her body like that of a caterpillar to a cocoon to a butterfly. At the end of your life, how will you look back? How will you want people to have described the way you lived your life? How will you have wanted people to describe your husband, your wife, your best friend, the way you lived this week? When you look yourself in the mirror this evening as you're brushing your teeth before you go to bed and you reflect on the day, how will you have lived this day? If you're a follower of Jesus, your goal is the same as Peter's. The driving force behind your life is that of faithfulness. But let me ask you another question. If you were a follower of Jesus, especially in that day, how would you describe Jesus and the way that he lived to someone who doesn't know much about Jesus? What would Jesus' epitaph have read? If you're to go to Jerusalem right now and visit the site known as the Garden Tomb, the place where Jesus was said to have been buried, you would not see a headstone or an epitaph for Jesus. I've never been there. 
But some of you have. How many of you have been to Jerusalem and you've seen the garden tomb? Some of you? A handful of you? Yes. There are signs all around that say uh, that, that where there are scriptures uh, that point to something about Jesus, right? Romans 1, 4 can be found. And it says that Jesus Christ declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. That's a pretty good epitaph for Jesus. On the, on the back, on the door that is swung open to the tomb, to the garden tomb, if you're on the inside, you see the door swung open. There's a little sign there that says, he is not here. He is risen. The message of the angels to the female disciples, the ladies who had come to show themselves faithful. Those are better. Those are better epitaphs, but certainly Jesus died. Certainly Jesus was buried, and yet this grave certainly could not hold him. None of those signs were there in the first century. So if you were Peter, if you were one of the people that saw Jesus, walked with Jesus, lived with Jesus, one of the people who were covered in the dust of Jesus, who went wherever Jesus went, one of the people who saw the miracles, participated in the miracles, one of the people who saw Jesus die, saw the resurrected Jesus, and saw him ascend into heaven. How would you describe Jesus, Israel's Messiah, after Thousands of years of culmination, of prophesying, of looking forward to the coming Messiah. He actually came. How would you describe Jesus? Well, thankfully, we have a pretty good answer to that. Jake and Lahana just read it from Acts chapter 10. There was no epitaph that Cornelius could go read. So God sent angels and dreams connecting Peter to Cornelius. And Peter was a living epitaph. Peter was a walking, breathing, living epitaph for Jesus. And Peter just said three simple things. Hey, Cornelius, God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. Jesus went around doing good. God was with him. What happened? God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. What was the outcome? Well, Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. How and why? Because God was with him. I love the simplicity of that. That's a fitting epitaph. Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. Peter, after a decade of thinking about this question, what do you want, what do I want people to say about me when I die someday? Contemplates the life of Jesus and puts it very simply, Jesus went around doing good. This was no small revelation for Peter. Peter had been with Jesus. He had been called to drop his nets, to come to the big leagues, to be one of Jesus' Talmudim, a disciple, an apprentice of Jesus, with the goals of being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and eventually to go do what Jesus did, to go make disciples. Peter's one big idea was this. God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit. Huh. Peter must have thought. Jesus promised that would happen to me, and it did. With power. Oh, yeah, that happened too. The sound of the mighty rushing wind was a pretty amazing thing. 
And Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. That was true about Jesus, Peter must have thought. All true. What an amazing epitaph. But Peter was more than an Obi-Wan Kenobi hologram in front of Cornelius. Peter was real flesh and blood human. I can hear something in Peter's voice when he says this. That thing I can hear is this, audacity. I think there was something in Peter's voice that indicated that Peter actually thought he could do this. Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. In other words, Peter was saying, I think I can do this too. For the last decade, I saw the Holy Spirit poured out on me and the people of God, Peter would say. In fact, not just once, again and again and again. I saw the Spirit outpoured with power again and again and again. And I think I can go around doing good. And sometimes healing those who were oppressed of the devil. I think there was something in Peter's voice that indicated that he thought he could actually live like Jesus. Audacity. This Peter? Are we talking about the same impulsive approval junkie who had no hesitation to say or do whatever he could to win the affection of his leaders and friends? The same Peter who had the audacity to rebuke Jesus only to have Jesus cast the devil out of him? That Peter thinks he could be like Jesus? The same Peter who Jesus said, Peter, the devil desires to sift you. I am praying for you. Can you imagine if Jesus said that to you? This Peter thinks he can actually become like Jesus. The same disciple who at the Last Supper was sitting close to Jesus, but not next to him. The same disciple who, when Jesus announced, someone today will betray me, this disciple was so filled with anxiety that it might actually be him. He wondered if it was him that was going to betray Jesus. So much so, he was so afraid that his fear is what prompted the question to John. Hey, ask him, ask him who it is. Is it me? That same Peter who promised to follow Jesus to death and honestly tried, instead making a miserable failure of himself and potentially the whole movement of discipleship to Jesus by denying Jesus. This guy, the same guy who dropped his nets to follow Jesus only to pick them up again three years later, was now the leader of the Jerusalem church. And his only goal was the same goal from when he was a child. What is faithfulness? Misguided and misunderstood as he may have been, faithfulness was his goal. Jesus, Peter said, went around doing good. I think I can do that. Jesus healed all who were oppressed of the devil. Well, I can't do that. But if God is with me, you better believe I can do that. I think there was something in Peter's tone 
that indicated audacity. He really thought he could be like Jesus and go do what Jesus did. And in fact, the, the very presence of Peter in this area, in Caesarea, with Cornelius indicated that he was being like Jesus. He was becoming like Jesus and doing what Jesus did. And there's something in Peter's voice. God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed with the devil because God was with him. There was something in his voice that said, Cornelius, this is an invitation. You can do it too. Our mission, the mission of every follower of Jesus, was the call on offer to Cornelius and company that day. Practice the way of Jesus together. Embrace a life of discipleship, of following Jesus with three things. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, go do what Jesus did. Or more plainly, go around doing good. Can you do that? Can you simply go around doing good? Well, there's a catch, you see. Cornelius was already a devout man, wasn't he? What was different about the kind of good Peter was talking about and the kind of good the Greeks and Romans talked about? What was difference, the difference between being a good centurion and being a good disciple of Jesus? What was the difference between being a good citizen adopting Hellenistic culture and all the beauty of, of art and music and, and all the sports and entertainment? What was the difference between adopting a way of life on offer through all the good of utopia on offer and the good that Peter was talking about? He was Israel's Messiah, filled with the Holy Spirit and with power. Well, remember, Peter actually described Jesus in three ways. Yes, Jesus went around doing good. But first, Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and with power. That happened to Jesus. Did you know that? Philippians says Jesus emptied himself. It says he took on the form of a servant. He became human. God made himself human and packed himself, the, the, the infinite value of his divinity, into a baby. But then Jesus lived a faithful life. He was the faithful image-bearing covenant partner that was talked about on pages 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis. He was the faithful prophet that all of the Hebrew Scripture had foretold. He was the faithful Messiah the faithful sacrificial lamb. But Jesus was baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. That happened to Jesus. But it happened to Peter too. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, just as Jesus taught him to do. And what was Peter doing when he was filled with the Holy Spirit? Peter was doing good. Peter did the only thing he knew to do. I want you to think about the, the miracles that Peter would have seen. I want you to think about the life that he would have seen lived out in front of him and the gap between what he saw Jesus do and what he saw in himself. 
Peter and his friends saw Jesus ascend into heaven. They stood there, mouths open wide, and angels showed up and said, hey, why are you looking into heaven? The same Jesus is going to come back the way you saw him leave. What would you do? What would you do? Well, you would disband the, the, the group. The band breaks up. You go back and pick up your nets and go. That's not what they did. Peter said, let's do the thing we know to do. Let's do the next right thing. What is the next right thing? Well, all day, every day, the people of God for centuries have adopted, have adopted our simple practice of doing good through prayer. They prayed in the morning, they prayed in the afternoon, and they prayed in the evening. They prayed, they prayed, they prayed. They prayed passionately. They did get caught up in prayer at certain times, but they also prayed through discipline. They, they prayed as the Spirit led, but they also prayed by showing up together consistently, whether they felt like it or not, whether they got a response from God or not. And there in that upper room on the day of Pentecost, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were doing good. They were being faithful in the moment that was before them with the story that they had, the bodies that they had, the place that they had. They gathered together, they lifted up their hands, and they prayed, and they simply prayed. There's nothing that said that they were worked up into a frenzy. There's nothing that said that these guys were hyper-emotional when this happened. But God poured out his spirit just like he promised he would. They heard the sound of a mighty rushing wind. They were filled with the Holy Spirit in what must have been, up to that moment, very ordinary moments. Leading up to that time, it must have felt like a drag. All the time that they had been with Jesus, all the miracles that they had seen, they just saw Jesus ascend into heaven, and yet for days it must have been boring. It must have been boring to follow Jesus. Do you know the majority of your life of faithfulness to Jesus is boring? It's not fun. It's not hyper high highs. The life of faithfulness. Don't you think about all of your best relationships? Don't you know the best relationships are just like this? Yes, there are high highs. Yes, there are low lows. But the best friends are the ones you can just hang out with. The best marriages are ones where you just can sit together and you don't even have to say anything. Yeah, you do have to talk. You have to talk. You have to talk to each other. Dallas Willard says the obviously well-kept secret of the ordinary is that it was made to be a receptacle of the divine, a place where the life of God flows. But the divine is not pushy. Let's just pause right there. Maybe this is something you need to hear. The divine is not pushy. God is not pushy pushy. Culture is pushy. Politics are pushy. Your body is pushy. Your mind is pushy. Anxiety is pushy. Your phone is pushy. Push notifications. Your life is pushy. Pushiness all around. But guess what? Your God 
is not pushy. Maybe the most counterintuitive thing about God is that he does not force his will upon you, though he could. If any being in all creation could make you do anything, it would be God, and he doesn't do it. He's not pushy. The divine is not pushy. What does it mean to be pushy? Well, when you try to push someone, literally, physically, it means you try to move someone's body without the cooperation of their will. You are violating their little kingdom. And we all, when that happens, we try to push back, don't we? The one virtue that the West still holds true, that we all show at least some middle ascent to, is that you should do you. Don't let anybody tell you who you should be. You do you. You be you. Every di- this is the theme of every Disney movie, every Disney song. You do you. You be you. Don't let, don't let anybody conceal, don't feel. I don't know how the rest of the song goes. But that whole song is about you doing you. My daughter was young when that movie came out. In order to practice the way of Jesus, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to do what he did, in order to go around doing good in the way of Jesus, you should be filled with the Holy Spirit. I said this a moment ago, but being filled with the Holy Spirit is not a one-time thing. When you begin to follow Jesus, for some of you, you remember a very specific moment. Maybe you were at a gathering somewhat like this and someone asked you to bow your head and close your eyes and pray a prayer and raise your hands and, or maybe come down front. Beautiful. That's amazing. Maybe it was your father or mother that spoke the gospel to you for the first time. And at some point, you don't know exactly where it happened, your heart changed. I like to say it this way. Uh, Psalm 130, what is it? Psalm 119, 33 says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not towards selfish gain. That's a great prayer to pray. If you're struggling with your relationship with God and you're wondering, what it, what, God, why don't you do what you do? Why aren't you filling me with your Holy Spirit? Pray this prayer. God, incline my heart to your will and not towards selfish gain. And you know what God will do? He'll reach into your heart. That's it, just that little tweak, and all of a sudden, the moment happens. The obviously well-kept secret of the ordinary is that it was made to be a receptacle of the divine, a place where the life of God flows. You see, if you want to go around doing what Jesus did, you have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in order to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you simply have to do this ask. That's all. That's what you have to do. Well, listen, Pastor Stephen, I have asked. It didn't happen for me. I asked and I asked and I asked and it didn't happen for me. You know what Jesus said? Luke chapter 11, verse 8. He said, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. It's a pretty astounding thing for Jesus to say. It's a pretty open-ended promise, isn't it? Can't that be misused and misunderstood? Can't people like, like hijack that for some kind of a, a, a selfish gain? Sure. Don't you think Jesus knew that? And Jesus still said, ask. And this is what he said, for everyone who asks receives. 
The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, it will be opened to him. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give give gifts, give good gifts to you? That's what it says, right? No, that's not what it says. You know how to give good gifts to your children. You think he's going to say, how much more will your heavenly Father give you good gifts? That's not what he says. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? What is he saying? You want me? You want to be with me? You want to become like me? You want to do what I do? Invite the Holy Spirit. Ask God, and he will give you not a solution, not just an idea, not just a way to life enhancement. He will give you himself. He will make himself on offer in that very moment. He will pour out his life in the ordinary container we call today. If you've not been filled with the Holy Spirit, what are you waiting for? That's what was on offer to Cornelius. Acts 4, uh, 10, 44, picking up where Jake and Lahana left off. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Again, an ordinary conversation Peter invites Cornelius into, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the, the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the outsiders, even on the people that it shouldn't have been, even on the unlikeliest people, the same kind of people who were around the fire that coaxed Peter into denying Jesus, the same kind of outsiders are now with Peter, and Peter is inviting them into a way of life, boldly inviting them, saying, you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Can, then it says, can anyone withhold these who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have to be baptized. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And they asked him to remain for some days. Peter was audacious enough to think he could become like Jesus, that he could go around doing good. And there he was in Judea doing what Jesus did. Cornelius was audacious enough to think he could be a disciple of Israel's risen Messiah because Peter invited him to. How is it that Peter hoped people would describe him as they looked back on his life? Well, I can't help but think that Peter was hoping to have the same description he gave to Jesus. I can't help but think that Peter... Imagine that someday Peter, people would say, oh yeah, Peter. God anointed Peter of Galilee with the Holy Spirit and with power. Peter, Peter simply went around doing good. And yes, even participated in healing people who were oppressed of the devil because God was with Peter. Do you know that that same invitation is on offer to you today? When you get to the end of your life, whenever that may be, what would you like someone to look back and say about you? How God anointed grace of Goleta with the Holy Spirit and with power. 
Grace simply went around her high school doing good. And yes, even healing those oppressed to the devil, for God was with her. How God anointed Dana of Venezuela. How God anointed Ricardo of Ecuador. How God anointed Jessica of Brazil. How God anointed Vic of New Jersey. Joseph of San Diego. And yes, even Sam of Texas. Jeff of Washington. Stephen of Oklahoma. With the Holy Spirit and with power. And they went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed to the devil. For God was with them. What does it mean, Jenna? What does it mean? Jenna asked. What does it mean to practice the way of Jesus in Santa Barbara? It means to be filled with the Holy Spirit again and again with power. Going about doing good. And the outcomes, the supernatural stuff, will come into those ordinary moments of faithfulness. You want to be with Jesus? Become like Jesus. Do what Jesus did. Invite the Holy Spirit into this very moment. I'm going to invite our worship band to come on up. If you want to know what to do to practice the way of Jesus, as simply as I can put it, it's this. Go around doing good. Go around doing good in your marriage. Go around doing good in your family. Go around doing good in your home. Go around doing good in your workplace. Go around doing good on State Street. Go around doing good at Alameda Park. Go around doing good at your school. Go around doing good to the people who least deserve it. Do you know, we don't fight evil with evil. The way we push back darkness is by doing good. God's acts of war are always acts of good. And you can participate in practicing the way of Jesus by being filled with the Holy Spirit and simply going around doing good because God is with you. Will you stand to your feet with me? The invitation that Peter gave Cornelius is on offer to us today in this ordinary moment, in this ordinary time. That invitation is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The book of Ephesians says, don't be drunk with wine where there's excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Many of you know that's a continuous action verb. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Some of you You've been filled with the Holy Spirit. You've been walking with Jesus for a long time. I just want to invite you to, into this space, communion and carpets, worship, to invite the Holy Spirit. Just say yes to whatever he has on offer for you. Some of you have never been filled with the Holy Spirit. Some of you have never said yes to Jesus' call to be with him, to go do what he did. Would you say yes to Jesus? We'll have prayer partners available for you. I'll be available to pray with you. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Be empowered to go about doing good. And someday, you'll see the good stuff happen. The miracles happen. The miracles you need, God is inviting you to participate in.
come have communion. Come pray. Come offer yourself as a living sacrifice to Jesus. And watch what happens. Be filled with the Holy Spirit.